take our Bibles tonight, and we're going back to the book of Malachi, Malachi chapter 3, and we are reaching, getting closer to the end of this series. We'll see maybe next week, drawing things to a close, Then I don't know where we're going. Normally, I'm chopping at the bit, the next book, but well, we'll just be patient and wait for the Lord's direction with that, but Malachi chapter number 3. And we left off with verse number 13, which is where we'll pick up tonight. We've been going through this final word, God to His people. We know what's in the future. We know that when the final verse is written to this book, that there is a period of 400 years of silence before John the Baptist comes on the scene and eventually, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ And I believe that that is directly related to the assessment of God's people that we find in the book of Malachi. And we've we've seen how dire overall, how dire the situation was among the remnant kingdom. What their worship had become. What their perspective of God had become. And how they had fallen so very far while not really even realizing how far and how, um, how distant they had become from God, which is a scary thing when you think about it. That we could drift so far in our hearts, not necessarily in the external things, the exterior things of worship, all the things we're supposed to do, but we could drift so far in our hearts that we think everything is fine when God sees something completely different. And so God sent his messenger, Malachi, the messenger, to deliver God's assessment of his people's spiritual state. This was the actual reality, the way God saw it, the way it actually was. And he was to share that with the people. So here in chapter 3 at the end in in our text tonight, we'll look at the eighth and final assessment that God brings to his people. The way they were. The problems that existed there. We pick up a reading in verse 13, where God says, Through Malachi, your words have been stout against me, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, What have we spoken so much against thee? Ye have said, It is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his ordinance, and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the proud happy. Yea, they that work wickedness are set up. Yea, they that tempt God are even delivered. The voice changes in verse 16. This is God now speaking. Then they that feared the Lord spake often to one another, or to another, one to another, excuse me. And the Lord hearkened and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels, and I will spare them, as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. Then shall ye return, and discern discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth not. Father, would you help us tonight? We approach your word, Lord, as always, I am in need of your help. And your guidance and assistance in your spirit, 
that your word may be spoken in a profitable way, in a way that will challenge us and encourage us. I pray that we would be able to see tonight what you wanted your people in the remnant kingdom to see, and as a result, that you would see what you want us to see tonight. May it be powerfully and practically applied to our hearts, and may this be a profitable time in your house under the preaching of your word. We ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever wrestled with the question in your walk with God, serving the Lord? The question of, is it really worth it? Is it really worth it? You know, as New Testament believers, Jesus challenges us and he challenged his disciples in discipleship to count the cost. Luke chapter 14. And he talks about how it's foolish for a man to go to battle without counting the cost of how much is required to win that that war, that battle. And the man who builds a tower and doesn't, doesn't at first sit down and consider the cost of what it will take to finish and how foolish that would be. And then he concluded in Luke 14 with this statement. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. The cost of real Christianity, the cost of true discipleship is not low. It's high. The cost is high, which brings us back to the question, is it really worth it? If the cost is high, is it really worth it to serve the Lord? And many of God's choicest servants have struggled with this question. They, they, they've wrestled with it. Servants like Job, like Jeremiah, like Asaph the, the psalmist, even John the Baptist. Is, it, is this really worth it? Now, it's one thing to wrestle with the question. Unfortunately, here in Malachi, the people had gone far beyond, to just, far beyond than just struggling with the question. They were actually stating it as fact. It's not worth it to serve God. It's not worth it to obey God. And that's, I'll just put this lightly, that's not a good place to be. That's not a safe place to be. God confronts His people with those words, and I believe along with it, And how he describes those words, God is confronting their attitude of arrogance and their attitude of disrespect. But as we have found all throughout the series, when the people respond in a a short, disrespectful manner, God actually answers their question. And tonight, the the, the wonderful thing that we're going to find is that in God's response, he answers the question. And he comes alongside with tender reassurance. And he wants to encourage all of us tonight, like he wanted to encourage the the, the faithful few in the remnant kingdom. He wants to come alongside us and he wants to encourage us. Encourage me, encourage you. It is worth it to serve the Lord. But first we have to take a look in verses 13 through 15 at the words of disrespect. 
the words are of disrespect. God tells them, your words have been stout against me, saith the Lord. The importance of words. God is listening to the words that we say. He pointed out in chapter 2, verse 17, we looked at that a couple weeks ago, that their words wearied him. They brought grief to his heart, to, to his mind. They wearied him, and it was their words that did that. Now here, in verse 13, here in chapter 3, their words are stout. Stout. What does the word stout mean? Well, it means strong. Their words were strong against God. They were proud against God. They were obstinate. So much so that, that what is being communicated in verse 13 is an offense. God is saying, you have insulted me by how you are talking about me. You know, it matters how you speak about God. We heard that last week, right? Job's friends. It matters how you speak about God. And God confronted them. You have not spoken of me the thing which is right. It matters. And it not only matters the, the words that come out verbally or vocally, the words that we give voice to, it also matters the words that we say in our heart. Because we understand Psalm 19.14 tells us that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, the meditation are the words of the heart. Those both need to be acceptable in the sight of the Lord. God knows both. He not only knows the words of our mouth, those that we give voice to, but He also knows the words of our hearts. And so the people in their words, whether it was out loud or whether it was in their heart, the people were disrespecting God. They were speaking in a proud and obstinate way against God. This is a very serious accusation. And he even says in verse 13, the beginning there, your words have been stout against me, saith the Lord. And we've seen this over and over again in this book. God is speaking. The Lord is speaking. This is Jehovah. And he's telling them, you blasphemed me. You've insulted me with your words. That's a serious accusation. That's one that ought to cause us to sit back and say, whoa, I need to take some time to look within. That's a strong accusation. I need to make sure that that is, whether or not that's actually true. Unfortunately, we don't see that as we've seen over and over again. Instead, instead of introspection, we see this eighth contradiction. And we've been pointing out these contradictions as we've gone along. This is the final one. And the contradiction is, ye say, what have we spoken so much against thee? Or as a teenager might say, who, me? I didn't say nothing. We didn't say anything. And did you notice, and I think the translators were helping us to understand what some of these underlying Hebrew words are saying. You notice how they, they say it and the translators added those two words are in italics. What have we spoken so much against thee. So, while they were kind of tacitly admitting there may have been some things that we said that weren't quite right, 
but they weren't really all that bad. Why isn't this a human problem? When God confronts with sin, when God shows us through his word a mirror of ourselves, it's, it's immediate deflection. It's, it's immediate defense where we say, well, you know, I, I, I see it, yes, but is it really all that bad? I see the words that we've said, but the, the words we've said, they're not really all that bad. We haven't disrespected you that much, God. What have we spoken so much against you? In our natural state, we do not like to hear God's assessment of our hearts. We don't like it. We recoil whenever we hear it. That's our natural state. But spiritually, we understand that when God reveals sin in our hearts, there is only one appropriate response. And that is, instead of doing what the people did in disagreeing with God, the appropriate response is agreement with God. And the biblical word for agreement with God is confession. The appropriate response when God shows us our sin, naturally it's defense, naturally it's deflection, naturally it's finding an excuse or explaining it away. But what needs to happen is we need to agree with God. We need to confess. Get on the same page with God. Because here's the truth. God is a God of mercy. He is a God of forgiveness. But that mercy and forgiveness is reserved for those who agree with God's assessment of themselves. You understand this with salvation, right? God freely offers the gift of salvation apart from works by grace. But what's the, requir- what's the requirement? That we agree with God about where we are, about who He is, about what the method is of salvation, the way of salvation. God just says, agree with me. Salvation's free. That's what's required. And in our Christian lives as well, we are promised forgiveness if we confess our sin, if we agree with God about our sin. So there's no agreement here. The people immediately defend themselves. And so, rather than really cutting them off, which is what they deserve, God explains Himself. He says, I've heard what you said, and this is what you've said. You've had some words, you've had some stout, proud, obstinate, disrespectful words to say, specifically about my service. Ye have said, in verse 14, ye have said, it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his ordinance and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? They were saying some things. You said some things about serving me. And here's what you said. Let me remind you. You said that service to God is empty. The word vain means empty. It means worthless. It's meaningless. It's futile. And serving God, that's work. That's the labor that, that we invest, that's the, the work that we do for God. Service for God, work and labor for God is futile. It's meaningless, it's empty, it's worthless. God requires too much and rewards too little. That's what they were saying about God. And you know, there are times that we in our, our own lives, we get to thinking, you know what? 
it's not worth all the effort. It's not worth the effort to participate in outreach. It's not worth the effort to be faithful in church attendance. I mean, I come Sunday morning, so what else, what more do you want out of me? It's not worth it. It's not worth it to, to be involved in church ministries, to actually fulfill your function as a church member and utilize the, the, not only the talents, but just, just the resources that God has given you to serve the Lord in the place, in the, the body where God has put you. It's not worth it. It's too much effort. And when we do it, the rewards aren't there. We don't receive the pats on the back. We don't receive the recognition. We get treated like an actual servant, and that becomes offensive. And I'm speaking to myself. Get all offended when people treat me like a servant of the Lord. But guess what? I'm a servant of the Lord. That's my function. Is it worth it, though? Is it worth it? You know, this is actually a question of faith. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder. Rewarder. Do you know what faith is believing that God rewards for his service? He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Faith is believing that not only God exists, but that God is a rewarder of those that follow His ways, of those that seek Him. This is a question of faith. These people had failed in their faith. They no longer believed that God was a rewarder because they were saying the service for God has no rewards. It's empty. It's futile. So they were saying service to God is empty. That's not all they were saying, though. They were saying that obedience to God is worthless. You see that in verse 13. I'm sorry, verse 14. It's vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his ordinance? What profit is it? Profit, that's what is my personal gain? What do I stand to gain? By being obedient to God's ordinance. Now, that word ordinance is very interesting. It's slightly different than we talked uh, previously in um, the last message uh, from earlier on in the chapter, verse 7. It talks about how they had gone away from his ordinances. And specifically, we talked about giving and tithing. uh, And those ordinances were God's laws, specifically. This word for ordinance is, is slightly different. It's not the same word. This word means a charge or a calling, or a a purpose. What they were saying is being obedient to God and walking in His purpose for us, in His calling on our lives, being obedient, there's no profit in that. There's no personal gain in that. In other words, God's just telling me what to do because He wants to ruin all my fun. He wants to ruin my enjoyment. And sometimes we think, oh, that's what the young people think. But it's, it's ingrained in us. Because when, when a trial comes, when a difficulty comes, we're just trying to get out of it. We're trying to get God to take it away. And God's telling, me, telling us, no, this is really best for you. The problem is we don't believe it's really best. We believe being out of it is really best. 
right? So, you know, God just wants to ruin my fun. That's just, you know, a translation. That's what we're actually saying. Obedience to God is, is worth it. Now, think about the remnant kingdom, these Jewish people. They had a specific calling. They had a specific purpose. And that was to be the light of God, to carry His law, to care for His law, to be a chosen people and represent Him to the world. As we pointed out as we've gone through, instead of this being a privilege that God would choose us to fulfill this incredible task, this privilege was viewed as a burden to bear. It was an annoyance. And they're saying, well, we don't see any gain. We don't see any profit for ourselves. They're literally saying the commandments of God are grievous. You know, 1 John 5 and verse 3, yeah, I did include that on there. This is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not grievous, they're not burdensome. Obedience to God, it's, it's worthless. There's no profit in it. It's just a burden. And God considers these words to be stout words because they directly contradict God's nature and God's purpose. God is not a sadistic being in the heavens looking to torture us with His directives. That's not who God is. But in essence, that what's, that's what they were saying. God is just telling us things to do because it benefits Him. It doesn't, necessarily benefits, it doesn't necessarily benefit us. That's a contradiction of God's character and who God is. God doesn't tell us things to do just because it benefits Him. God doesn't give us commands because He wants to make it burdensome and grievous. His commands are what is best. His commands are helpful for us. He's, he is in it for us, not for himself. And you see how these are stout, stout words because they're kind of blasphemous words. They directly contradict who God is. If we want to know the truth, if the truth be told, the people didn't realize the gain of fulfilling their purpose because they weren't actually fulfilling their purpose in the first place. Did you follow that? They thought they were. They thought everything was good. They weren't experiencing the gain of fulfilling their purpose because in actuality they weren't really fulfilling their purpose. It was just an outside game, an outside show. It was not what God had requested. It was not what God had required. They were saying service to God is empty, obedience to God is worthless, but they were also saying that relationship with God is meaningless. And you say, where do you see that? Well, look towards the end. It's the third thing they say. It's kind of combined with the second thing. What profit is it that we have kept his ordinance? And we could do this. What profit is it that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? What is that speaking of? The word mournfully literally means in black. Walk in black. To walk in sorrow, to walk in mourning. And where does this sorrow and mourning come from, come from in relationship between God and His people? Especially when we 
attach it, and, and Malachi does, God does through Malachi, attach it with the previous um, mention about the, the purpose for God's people, the calling, the ordinance um, that they were to be walking in. Um, we connect those two ideas. What we see here is a complaint about the awareness of sin. Because the purpose of the law was to demonstrate that there is a problem in our relationship with God. We understand that about the law. Romans chapter 7, verse 7, Paul says, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law said, Thou shalt not covet. So the law was given, and even given to the nation of Israel, not so that they could keep the letter A, B, C, D, E, F, and, and, and be you know, the perfect people, but the law was given for them to see their sin. It was meant to demonstrate their sin. And the people, as they, as they tried to perform God's law, as they saw their sin, the, 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 the cry of their hearts was, what profit is this constantly hearing about sin and our need to repent? Why do we always have to hear preaching about how we fall short of God's glory? Why do we always have to hear about sin? Why do we always have to hear about God's standard? Can't we hear about something a little nicer? It'd be nice to not have to walk around mournfully all the time. It'd be nice not to have to be regularly reminded over and over and over through the sacrifices offered over and over and over. Why do we have to be reminded of our sin so often? Can't we just be happy already? But see, the law is meant to demonstrate the problem in our relationship with God so that it can be adequately repaired. So something can be done about it. And they said, you know what, this is meaningless. There's no profit in this. There's no gain in this. And just think about that statement. No gain? From relationship with God? No gain seeing as God sees? Really? No profit? But that's where their heart was. They had some words to say about God's service, and they had some words to say specifically about God's enemies. Verse 15, they say, and now, this is their, these are their words continued, okay? They're continuing to speak. And now we call the proud happy. Yea, they that work wickedness are set up. Yea, they that tempt God are even delivered. We call. I like that in verse 15. This is not as if this is actual reality. It's their flawed and limited perspective. This is how we see things. This is the reality that we see this is what we see with our physical eyes. And I'll remind you, this is not actual reality. It's just what they perceived to be reality. And this was the reality they saw. They said, well, the arrogant, they're ecstatic. They're, they're happy. The proud are happy. Proverbs 6 tells us that the proud look is something that God hates. It's in the list of the six things that God hates. The proud look. And they're saying that, okay... Pride is in direct opposition to God. It's what God hates. They are saying that in order to find happiness, in order to find fulfillment, we have to do the very thing that God hates. That's what they're saying. 
Or we could flip it around and put it this way, that happiness and fulfillment is found, found outside of God's will. So we don't, want to actually, you know, we don't want to be surrendered actually to God's complete will because, you know, we're not going to be happy. We're not going to be fulfilled. Now they're clearly insinuating that if those that are in opposition to God are happy, they're clearly insinuating that those who serve God aren't happy. So they have some words to say about God's enemies. The arrogant are ecstatic. The wicked, oh, they're established. Did you see that there in verse 15? They that work wickedness are set up. And what that means to be set up is to be built. It's to be established. It's to be settled. Again, saying that those who serve God aren't built. They're not settled. They're not at peace. Might be another way we would say that. But those who work wickedness, I get this idea. It's not just the, the wicked. It's those that, that they're, they're working wickedness. It's kind of like the, the project in the garage, right? Get out there and work wickedness. It's, it's, the, it's the hobby kind of thing. Those that are, are after wickedness, they're the ones that are established. That's what they saw. We see those that are that are opposing God, those that are involved in sin and wickedness, those are the ones that are settled and at peace. Was that the actual reality? No, it wasn't. Look at chapter 4 and verse 1. He says, Behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, all that do wickedly, shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. That is reality. That is truth. That's not what they saw. That's not what they said. The wicked are established. And then number three, the defiant are escaped. They that tempt God are even delivered. The idea of tempting God is to do something willfully against God with the attitude of, you see that? What you going to do about it? I mean, that's a, that's a defiant attitude. And they're saying those that are basically challenging God with their actions, they get away with it. They escape. Again, insinuating that those who serve God are the ones who are trapped. They're trapped inside the box. They're tied up. They have no freedom. They have... Uh, uh, no ability to decide on their own. They're miserable. This is what they're saying about God's enemies. If we're not careful, we can say some of the same things. But here in verse 15 and into 16, there is a definitive turning point in the, and in the entire book, really. No longer. So this, this ends right here at verse 15. The line's drawn. And no longer does God address and speak to the rebellious and the defiant, the disrespectful. Now, he's done that all throughout the book, as we've seen. But this is the line in the sand. God's done. And it's almost as if he shifts his focus to the few. Not a whole lot, but the couple. The few that are interspersed and hearing the message from God, and he has a message, a specific thing that he wants them to know, and he begins to address them. 
In verse 16, he says, Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and thought upon his name. There is an emphasis here. Two times in verse 16, we see that phrase, those that, they that fear the Lord, or that feared the Lord. And now the transition is to this, the reward of the reverent. We've seen the words of the disrespectful. But remember the question, the underlying question is, is it really worth it to serve God? That's still a question. It's still on the table. It's still one that needs to be answered. Is it really worth it? Now, God has challenged those who have definitively said it's not worth it. But that question is still there, isn't it? Is it worth it to serve God? Is it worth it to fear God? So he addresses those that feared God. Do you know that fearing God will have an impact on the words of our mouth and the words of our heart? Those that feared God weren't saying the things that the defiant were saying. And it's interesting, um, we think about fearing God, we say, well, I want to fear God. We know that fearing God is, is, a, is a positive thing, it's, it's a helpful thing, it's something that we ought to do. But how does one obtain the fear of the Lord? Where does the fear of God come from? Well, I think, I think God actually answers this question in this verse. Notice what the, those that fear the Lord, notice what they're doing. The end of verse 16. They are thinking upon His name. Ah, this is where the fear of the Lord comes from. Thinking upon His name. When we think about God's name, we are meditating on, we are giving our thoughts to God's identity, who He is. We are asking the question, who is God? What is He like? We're thinking about the direct opposite of some of the insinuations that we read about in the verses prior. They're thinking about God's justice. The fact that God is actually just. And remember, a couple weeks ago, we talked about questioning God's justice. And many of the people were. But these folks, they were, they're thinking about God's justice. They're thinking about God's faithfulness. They're thinking about God's omniscience. They're thinking about His judgment. They're thinking about His name, His character, who He is. And it brings them to the place of fearing God. And because they feared God, there's a reward for them. Now you'll notice in verse 16, it starts off talking about those that fear God. It seems like they're segregated off to the side. And they're speaking one to another. They're talking one with another. They're separated from the rebellious talkers. They're, they're outside of the mainstream. They're assembled together and they're sharing truths with each other about God's nature and God's identity. And God says, I see those people. I see those individuals. And I want to tell you what I think about that and what will be the end result of that. Those that fear the Lord, number one, they will be remembered. They will be remembered. It says the Lord, there's three things actually. The Lord hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him. Three things. The Lord hearkened, and it's interesting how this is written. He hearkened and heard. 
We say, aren't those the same thing? Sort of. I mean, to hearken means to incline your ear. It means to, to pay attention or to take notice. So God took notice of what they said. He, he leaned in, so to speak, to, to, to hear what they said. And then He heard them. He listened with focus. He listened with interest. God's saying, I hear what you're saying. I hear some of the struggles that you have. I know what's on your heart. I'm giving myself to know, to understand. I know where you're at. And a misused phrase, I, I, I understand your pain. I understand your difficulty. Because I am the high priest who's touched with the feeling of your infirmities. The Lord hearkened and the Lord heard. He inclined his ear and he listened with attention. And then it talks about how the Lord recorded. It doesn't say he's actually the one recording, but it says he had a book written and a book of remembrance was written before him. This was something that God had done. A remembrance book. A book that was recording what was on the hearts of these people. You know, we all have an inner desire to be remembered. Remembered for something. It's amazing what people will give up in order to be remembered. It's amazing what the sports athlete is willing to sacrifice and give up. Just for the illusion of being remembered. But as with anything, the records fade And all it takes is for that generation that watched you play to pass off the scene and the next generation has no idea. They're infatuated with the next... I mean, it's almost like you get your day of glory, you know, when you retire and everyone like, woo, and then next day, boop, gone. Moving on, next. He did all that to be remembered. But you know those that fear the Lord, those that serve the Lord? God says, I'll remember you. I am the perfect accountant. Good. I'll always remember that, Brother Kuzel. So the Kuzel are here with us tonight. Many years ago, he said that God is the perfect accountant. Amen. And he doesn't let anything slip. He doesn't let anything by. He remembers. He keeps track. Psalm 56 and verse 8. What a wonderful verse. The psalmist Asaph records this. Thou tellest my wanderings. Put my tears into thy bottle. Are they not in thy book? God remembers. If you serve the Lord, you give yourself to fear of the Lord, God will remember you. But not only does He remember those who are reverent, He also treasures those that are reverent. Think about this in verse 17. And they, they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts. In that day when I make up my jewels, we sang that song tonight, When He Cometh to make up his jewels. This is the verse where that comes from. They shall be mine. Hmm. God says, I'm going to treasure those that serve me. Treasured. Treasured as my possession. They shall be mine. Think about all the things that God owns. He owns everything. He has everything. But the one thing that he cherishes... The one thing that he treasures are his people. Those that serve him. God is saying to you, you are valuable to me. 
You are my, my jewels. He said this to his people in Exodus 19 and verse 5. If ye will obey my voice and indeed keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. For all the earth is mine. Of all that God owns, His treasured possession. Think about His jewel. His jewel is us. His jewels are those that serve Him. Treasured because they are His possession. Treasured because they bring about His compassion. This is what the end of the verse is speaking of in verse 16. Oh, I'm sorry, um, verse 17. He says, I will spare them. This is the end of the verse. I will spare them as a man that spareth his own son that serveth him. Okay, what is that referring to? The word spare, notice it says, for him that serveth him. The word spare means to have pity, or sorry, to have pity or to have compassion. I created my own word there, all right? (laughs) Too many weekends with teenagers this month, right? Compassion, to have pity, to release from condemnation. And this compassion is for two different reasons. First, compassion is because of relationship. It says, The Lord will spare him as a man spareth his own son. Compassion because God has adopted us into his family. Those of us who have received him have received the power to become the sons of God. John 1 and verse 12. God loves us because of his relationship with him. He loves those that serve him because of relationship. And he loves those that serve him because of reward. Because he points out in verse 17, he spareth his own son that serveth him. There is a reward for those that serve him. I don't think this is any mistake. This, this harkens all the way back to, eh, it's empty serving the Lord. It's vain serving him. So he's using the same word. Those that serve me, I'm going to spare. I'm going to have pity. I'm going to have compassion. So he remembers them. He treasures them. And then number four, he gives them revelation. They're revealed Verse 18 says, Then shall ye return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. And you know, that that verse caused some puzzling thoughts. Like, okay, what exactly is being said here? Well, there's a couple things specifically. One is there is a promise of restoration. It says, Then ye shall return, or then shall ye return. You think about the righteous, especially... This tiny group doesn't seem like very large, especially among all the all the, the nation, the trend of the generation. This small little remnant experienced the same thing that the righteous experience today. Times they get shoved aside. They're shut out of any earthly reward or recognition. They're on the outside looking in. But God's saying, I'm promising you that you will return. I'm promising that there will be restoration that will take place. And obviously there's a specific application for these Jewish people because God's kingdom is still yet to come. 
and they will be able to return to the land. But I think in a general sense, there's this promise that God's going to restore, that, that God's going to rightfully recognize those that deserve to be recognized, to rightfully reward those that deserve to, to be rewarded, those that serve Him. Is it worth it to, uh, to serve the Lord? Yes, because He rewards. And He reveals that about Himself. And He says in Hebrews 11, this is what you need to believe about Me, that I am a God that rewards. Promise of restoration. But then, the second half of the verse talks about how they're going to be able to discern between the righteous and the wicked. There is a promise of perspective or a promise of discernment. We talked about discernment in Sunday school this morning and we were defining that in our teen class, discernment, being willing to separate between two different things to see the difference between them. And what they are seeing is the reality of who is righteous and who is wicked. You know, in our earthly perspective, these things have a tendency of melding together. We can't tell the difference. It's one of the things, one of the reasons why I long for heaven, just to know what the actual truth is. <laughs> Who's telling the truth anymore? I don't know. I just want to know. God could tell me, you know, what, what's actually going on here? But see, we need God and His perfect perspective in order to discern. We need God in order to see things the way they really are. And God's saying, I'm going to give you discernment. I'm going to give you the perspective that you need to be able to clearly delineate those who are mine and those who are not. When it comes to this issue of, is it really worth it to serve God? We need God's perspective. I wish we had time to go there, but probably most of you remember, you've read Psalm 73. And we were going to look at, we just don't have time tonight, but look at how the psalmist's perspective was, was the, the struggle that we talked about. Is it really worth it? I mean, I see the, the wicked, they, they seem to have free reign. They seem to be the ones rewarded. They seem, to be, uh, they seem to be able to get away with whatever they want to do. That's what I'm seeing. And he talks about in, in uh, Psalm 73, 16, how it almost caused him to stumble. It almost caused him to, fe- to fall. And God came to him and he said, let's go into my house. Let's go into the temple where I dwell. And when the psalmist went there, his perspective changed. Then I saw. He saw it. He saw it. And then the rest of the psalm is completely flipped. I see the reality. I see what's actually happening to the wicked now, I didn't see that with my earthly eyes, but I saw that with the eyes that God gave me, the proper perspective. You see, the disrespectful, they chose to depend on their perspective, on their sight. This is what we see. And that's what informed what they said. However, the reverent chose to depend on God's perspective. And right now, we accept that perspective by faith. Because that's what God says it to be. But one day, it's going to be reality. There's going to be no doubt left anymore. We're going to, be, we're going to know what, what is. So the disrespectful were living by sight. The reverent were living by faith. We ought to live by faith and not by sight. 
2 Corinthians 5 and verse 7. So tonight as we consider the reward of the reverent, we consider the words of the disrespectful and how some of the tenets behind what they were saying are easy. In fact, we could probably even, if we look close enough to the words of our heart, we have uttered some of those same thoughts. But tonight we ought to ask ourselves, are my priorities informed by faith or by sight? Is where I set my agenda, is where I set my priorities of where I invest my time and what I do with the life that God has given me, is that informed by what I see or on what God says? On what just kind of naturally comes as important? Because you know how those things, those urgent things come in and like, ah, I got I to do this, I don't have time. Those urgent things come in and crowd out the priorities. But when we have God's perspective, we seek those things that are above. Where Christ sits on the right hand of God. We seek the things of heaven. We seek the things of God. We serve God. Are your priorities informed by that faith? Maybe we could flip it around and put it this way. You say, well, no, I I live by faith. Well, is your faith in God clearly evident by your service for Him? If we were to watch your life and see where you are invested, what's your ministry at Lehigh Valley Baptist Church? Where do you serve? Can anybody even see? Now, I'm not saying we do things to be seen of men. You understand that. But is it evident? That you're serving the Lord and you're serving the Lord because you believe that God is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him? That you're not saying, serving the Lord, what profit is that? Well, it's vain, it's empty. Is your faith clearly evidenced by your service for Him? That's a convicting question. Because tonight we can definitively say, and God definitively shows us in His Word, He definitively demonstrates to His people, is it worth it to serve God? Is it? Hmm, That's a question that only you can answer with how you live your life. 